this family's looking for a lawyer. Are you willing to come down here and meet them? They said, I said, yeah. When will you come? Right now. I'm in the shower, you know, at 3.05, shampooing my wife. And I was like, what are you doing? I'm going to the hospital to sign up a case. I go and sign that case up. And that case becomes the case that gave me the financial independence to do what I did now. In the legal world, John Morgan is someone who needs no introduction. John founded his legendary law firm, Morgan & Morgan, in the 1980s and has been both a pioneer and dominant figure in the legal industry ever since. The insurance company in Boston, he says, we don't know if you can try a case or not. We're not sure, but you sure have done a good job up to this point, and we're going to offer you, and then they finally offered me the number. This is the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. In this episode, I connected with the man, the myth, the legend, John Morgan himself. You see, I wanted to learn about how he makes decisions, his mindset towards law firm growth, and how this indisputable market leader defines success. Our conversation got to the core of who he is, what keeps him up at night, and what he believes the future of the legal landscape holds. Because billable time, for example, is really just pure out-and-out grand larceny every day. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. When people think of John Morgan, they think of his firm's slogan, For the People. John has always said that the journey for justice has been his life's work. Simply put, when something needs fixing, John Morgan finds a solution. This relentless, problem-solving attitude has taken him from his career as a practicing attorney to being a market-dominating business leader, a political activist, and even developing his own practice management software used by firms nationwide. From a team of three attorneys in the 1980s, John Morgan grew his organization into what is now America's largest personal injury law firm, with well over 500 lawyers across the country. What's the secret sauce in his recipe for success? According to John, it's a combination of luck, determination, loyalty, and his humble beginnings as a paperboy. People say to me, well, did you see this coming? Well, of course not. All I saw coming was trying to have a small personal injury firm. The way I did it is one step in front of another step. And I never thought about this. I call it the teacup. When I got a teacup, an important water into the teacup. Once the water starts pouring over the teacup, once we get to diminishing returns, which is the waters, I I can't catch it in the teacup. I can't grow this business anymore. The people in Orlando, I've kind of plateaued. Then I would move to the next city. And then that was Tampa. And then it was Jacksonville. And then it was Fort Myers. And so that's the way I built it. I didn't build it saying, I'm going to go build you know, we, we think by the end of the year, we'll have uh, 700 lawyers. I never thought that. I just thought 
I want to do well and do a good job for my clients. I just want to keep filling this teacup. So there's no end, end destination. No. Listen, at the end of the day, for all of us, and the people who don't think this way make a grave mistake and they, they get torn rotator patting themselves on the back. The key thing for all of us that have been successful is luck. Just pure luck. Life is luck. Early in my career, I got a gigantic case. I was a young lawyer. Nobody knew if I could do the case or not. It had every single wrinkle on it you could imagine. It was a paraplegic boy, but there was only 100000 in coverage, supposedly, but it was a rent-a-car, and they didn't pay their insurance, so it was owned by Key Capital Leasing. And the car that hit him from behind, he was pushing a car from behind, but it was a dark road and they were pushing it in the dark, but the guy that hit him had a DUI and was drunk. And it was just this really unbelievable case. And I get the call at three o'clock in the morning from a friend of mine who was a nurse at the hospital and said, this family's looking for a lawyer. Are you willing to come down here and meet them? They said, I said, yeah, when will you come right now? I'm in the shower, you know, at three Oh five shampoo. And my wife and I said, what are you doing? I'm going to the hospital, to sign up a case. I go and sign that case up. And that case becomes the case that gave me the financial independence to do what I did now. If the person who was driving the car had paid the insurance premium, it would have been a $100,000 case, but they didn't pay it. And then I went through all the legal to get Key Capital Bank involved in it. When I look back at that case from the call at three o'clock in the morning for me getting up out of my bed and all the way to settle the case the Friday before the trial. The guy from uh, the insurance company in Boston, he says, we don't know if you can try a case or not. We're not sure, but you sure have done a good job up to this point, and we're going to offer you, and then they finally offered me the number. So luck plays such an important role in everything we do, from the girl we marry to the kids we have, to just being born. You know the odds of being born are it's trillions to one just to be born and then to be born in America instead of somewhere else. And so I don't spend a lot of time patting myself on the back. I spend more time thinking, thank you, thank you, thank you. Life is luck. And John, how do you define success? I define success by looking at my firm and my businesses. And when I look and I see all these people who've been with me for 30 something years, 25 years, 20 years, 15 years, on and on and on and on and on. And when I try to recruit people, I say, these people have been with me for all these years for a reason. Because when you take a job, you're really working for a promise. It's not a contract. You're working for a promise. I define success by my relationships with the people who've been in business with me and people who've done business with me and that they continue to do business with me because over all these years, I did what I said I was going to do. You know, there's this uh, there's this quote by uh, by Bette Midler, and I think it goes something like, like, the worst part of success is trying to find someone who's happy for you. And, and I'm wondering if over the years, I'm, and I'm sure uh, you've dealt with your share of animosity. I mean, probably any market that you go into, there's somebody that's already upset and frustrated by that. You mentioned the name John Morgan. It's very polarizing. What has what your experience been? 
look, I am a capitalist and I like competition and I like to be challenged. And I like when people, you know, cause I think it makes us better and I can't help them by just staying out of their market, but I can help them get better by going into their market. Because when I go in, I mean, there's a seminar that somebody does. I've seen it. And the topic is, what do you do when John Morgan comes into your market? There's an actual seminar with CLE credits. What I would say to them, you don't need to go to a seminar to do it. You can just listen to this right here. Get better. Be better. Don't take it lying down. But they want to blame me instead of blaming themselves. You know, why can I grow and they can't? And why can other firms grow and be successful and others can't? We tend to hate to say, you know why we're not successful? Because I'm lazy. They want to say, John Morgan is the reason I'm not successful. That's not the reason they're not successful, because other law firms are successful that I compete with. Some cities I go into, it's very hard to make inroads. I've actually been in cities where I was like, you know, this, this, this is going to be a harder slog than I've, you know, Atlanta has been a, where you are, has been, a, you know, very difficult for me for a lot of reasons. And it wasn't until recently that I really started breaking the log jam there where I had questions like, is this just going to be too much? And there's certain people who are never going to be happy for you. There are people out there that would rather see a total stranger win the lottery than their own brother or sister than their best friend. One of the things that I have always thanked God for is the way I'm genetically programmed is this. If my friend wins the lottery, I'm throwing the fucking party and I'm buying the beer because I'm so happy. I, I remember when Mike Papantonio and Fred Levin had their huge tobacco settlement. I flew to Pensacola. We had dinner. We celebrated. I didn't make a penny. I didn't make a penny. And they just made, I mean, I don't know what, I think they're still getting paid. And other than them, I was the happiest guy. So I, I want to talk about mindset because, I mean, I, I think if, if people can take away anything, if nothing else, I think success leaves clues. And, and, you know, in your book, you mentioned that your business motto is that nothing is about today. Everything is about tomorrow. Uh, if you could speak to that. There's a great book. I don't know if you've read it or not. It's called Givers and Takers. Have you ever read it? Or give and take, give and take, givers. I forget the way it goes, but it basically goes like this. There are people who give and want nothing in return. I'll buy you a drink. I'm getting nothing out of it. Some people buy a drink and go, you know, when, I hope he does something for me. The basic gist of the book is the people who give expecting nothing in return are the ones who usually get the most. The ones who go, well, hey, Mike, I did that for you. What are you going to do this for me? And calling in chits, they're the ones that do worst. So when I say in that book, nothing is about today, everything's about tomorrow, it's that. I buy you a drink. I buy you two drinks. I buy you three drinks, and we have a great time. And I'm not hoping for anything other than we had a good time. And if you think about it that way, if you decide to give and not look for anything in return, you get so much more over and over and over again. And just acts of kindness. I had a case one time where a woman was 
walking her child across the crosswalk and a bus in Jacksonville, Florida killed the child in her arms, in her hand. My investigator called me back and he said, hey, we got this case. I want to tell you how we got it. And I go, well, how do we get it? And he said, the woman was a waitress at Bob Evans in Lake Mary, where I live. One Christmas Eve, a couple of years ago, you went in for breakfast. You paid your bill and left her a $100 tip, $100 bill. She then called me. We sell the case for like four and a half million dollars. I made a million three fee by giving out a dollar, $100 tip and I wasn't looking for nothing. I didn't know who she was. And I certainly could never have thought that, that what happened happened. But when it did happen, you know what she thought to herself? I'm going to go with the nice guy. I'm going to go with the kind guy. I'm going to call him up. He gave me $100 on Christmas Eve. So I love that. And, and, I, and I, it's one of those things. So to follow this, I want to ask you, because I've always believed that everybody has a story. And I'm always curious in terms of like, you know, how did you develop your business acumen? Or more importantly, like, why are you the way that you are? Well, I have one other book in me. And the book is basically this. I believe that it goes back to life is luck. I believe I'm the way I was because I was born this way. Warren Buffett was born that way. He was a paper boy. I'll bet you, you, you're probably too young to have ever been a paper boy. And I don't know anything about you. I really don't, except what I've just kind of seen what you've done here in life. But I'll bet you, you were very entrepreneurial as a kid. I believe you had something going. Now, in my generation, we were all paper boys. The people who were paper boys were the guys, because I'll meet people and I go, Hey, were you a paper boy? They go, yeah, why? I just wondering. Because I was born that way. I was born. I didn't, and by the way, being a paper boy is hard. It's seven days a week. It's rain. It's snow. It was in Kentucky. And you have to get up and you got to collect money. And sometimes they don't pay you money. When they didn't pay me money, I would go back and egg their houses later that night when they wouldn't, wouldn't pay me. But I was born that way. Some people are not born that way. And it doesn't matter rich or poor. Oprah was a paper girl. Christy Brinkley was a paper girl. Jack Welch was a paper boy. He was born that way. Warren Buffett calls it winning the ovarian lottery. And this goes back to life is luck. You know, I'm lucky that I was born to be a paper boy, that I always wanted to have money and my own money. And so when I look at it all, I think it's a lot is genetic. And then I was born in America. And then life can be unlucky that turns out to be the best luck. I was in Kentucky. I love being in Kentucky. I was all my friends. are when I go back to Kentucky now, my, my Little League Tiger team all gets together and play. We, my Christ the King reunion is coming up, and we're going to have the, the thing at my son's bourbon bar in Lexington. But then I had to leave Kentucky because my dad lost his job and I left everything and I cried all the way to the airport. I got on my first ride and I went to Florida and then I realized, boy, we really are poor people because look where we're living. All of a sudden you're like, holy shit, I am poor. I am desperate. But my dad bought a house in one section of town instead of the other, same exact house, 
but I was a better neighborhood. And then I got in that school district and that school district made me better and smarter. And then I got to be around rich people and I got to see what they were doing. And then I got to go to the University of Florida. But almost none of that luck had anything to do with me. And when you realize that, again, like I say, you quit patting yourself on the on the back and then just try to start getting a better return on luck. So it's interesting you, you mentioned luck, and, and I, I certainly agree with you, but there's a, a part of this when you mentioned that, that phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning. A lot of this is also you're taking very, very committed action. I mean, in a way, it's almost like I would equate luck with gratitude, like realizing how much there is to be grateful for and then not wanting to squander any opportunity. Well, that's right. You see, the reason the name of that book that you got there, you can't teach hungry. You can't. You, you can't teach hungry. It's just there. It's lucky. But the thing that irritates me about people is they want to they'll say, well, you know, well, by God, you got up out of the bed at three o'clock in the morning. and You went and did it. You know, by God, you did it. But I was built that way. They go, yeah, but you did it. You actually did the work. Well, yeah, but some people aren't capable of it. And you say, well, yeah, yeah, they are. No, they're not. We're animals. We're no different than animals in the jungle. In the jungle today, a lion will be born. And that lion is the king of the jungle just because he or she's a lion. The same day, a sloth will be born. Okay? Same day, same jungle, same deal. That sloth is so fucked you can't even describe it because he's a sloth. All he can do is barely muster up enough energy to come down the tree, grab some berries, go to the bathroom, and go back up and go to sleep. There's two different mules. There's the hardworking mule and there's the stubborn mule. They're just built that they cannot get up. I'm lucky that I was a lion instead of the sloth, and I'm lucky that I got the genes to be the hardworking mule that'll get up in the snow. And by the way, once I got through with the paper route, I went and shoveled snow. You know, I wasn't done. I didn't go by. I mean, I went to the, I went to the toddle house and got some bacon and eggs, but then I was back out shoveling snow because the day wasn't over, but that's how I was built. And so that gives you such a great advantage. And it's totally out of Shaquille O'Neal cannot be Shaquille if he's not seven foot three. If he's built like me, he's like the fucking sloth. He's fucked. Well, let's say someone's listening to this right now and they're just, they've just started out their law firm. You know, they've got a small firm and they're not at the point where they're, you know, they're anywhere near being a market leader. But when they're hearing this, how do they know the difference between whether they're that person or not, just because they haven't made that progress yet or that traction yet to the point where, I mean, you have to believe there is free will, right? So that's, it's recognizing that, but how do they identify that early on? Look, people know. People, what do they say? Know thyself. We know who we are. Sometimes we don't want to admit who we are, but we know who we are. We know if we get up early. We know what time we get up. We know what time we come home from work. At the end of the day, numbers don't lie. We know if we work on Friday. We know what we do on Saturday. We know. Now, a lot of times we don't want to admit we're lazy. We want to act like we're working. But we all know if you are able to self examine yourself and be honest with yourself. You know what you are. I know what I am. And we also know what our weaknesses are. And when you sometimes find those weaknesses, then you got to go find partners that can supplement 
your weaknesses. Listen, there's one common denominator with successful people, by and large. Every one of them worked hard, worked very, very hard and long, long hours. And ask yourself, how many hours a week do I work? How many days a week do I work? It's like when I examine, when you examine your soul and your heart, if you ever want to examine your heart and your soul, look at your checkbook and look at your calendar. And if you're lazy, I can't help you. I can't help you. You're, you're the sloth and you might need to go work for the Florida Highway Patrol legal or something like that. Many of the leaders I speak with possess a certain level of, well, paranoia, if you will. This inherent nature that pushes them to keep distancing the gap between their organization and their competition. In John's book, You Can't Teach Hungry, he references Andy Grove, the CEO of Intel, who summed up his experience successfully steering the company through the dawn of the internet age with one phrase, only the paranoid survive. For John, the fear of failure is something that's with him every day, but that's part of what makes him and keeps him hungry, humble, and always innovating. Because I have been desperate. I have been poor. I have been without, you know, I don't know where I'm going to turn. There, there's no worse feel in the world to have a financial crisis and not know how you're going to solve it. The only way I ever knew to solve it was to work my way out of it. But even then, you still, I still have the dream that I'm in law school or school and I haven't gone to class and, you know, I'm running around on the day of final exam and, you know, I'm going to fail out. I still have that dream. And when you've been hungry and when you've been desperate, that is a permanent feeling that never leaves your brain, never leaves your psyche. You can't get it out because it was so devastating and traumatic. When I look back on all the things I went through as a kid and how hard it was to get through school and law school and make money, oh, I, I look at it and I go, how did it happen? I don't know how I did it. And there were so many close calls where am I going to be able to continue? Well, and, and I'll tell you, I mean, many of the most successful people that I speak with, they have this level of paranoia. I mean, I even feel it myself. Every day I feel maybe the gig is almost up. It's almost like it, it stays with you. And you mentioned in the book, you're waking up in cold sweats. Are you still waking up in cold sweats? Does this still happen? Well, I don't wake up in the cold sweats like I used to because, you know, I'm a saver of money. And I've always, like when I had that first big case I told you about, I bought my house cash. And I've never, I've always bought my houses cash. So because I'm so worried about failure and because we have, as a kid, we lost our homes. You know, I mean, I've lost my home. I've had power cut off. I've picked up the telephone and the bill's not been paid. I've had the ACE air conditioner go down for three years in Florida. So I've got enough money that I'm going to be okay no matter what. But I still worry because I'm competitive. I mean, I, I'm in the attraction business. I have a lot of attractions across America you know, when I get off this deal with you, I got to deal with what do I do there? Did Disney World has closed for the month. What do I do? 
And so, but I'm not as worried as much about total devastation as I was when I had no money and four children and a wife. And you go down and you look in those bedrooms and those little people are counting on you to make sure their life stays perfect. That really makes you, that really makes you paranoid. When you, how many kids do you have, Mike? One, 14 months old. 14 months. So go look in that crib. You know, is it a boy or a girl? The girl. So that little girl, even worse. When a little girl's looking up at you, she's like, I don't need to worry about anything. I got him. And then you carry that, and then you walk out of the room and carry that burden. And hopefully it inspires you to work harder. I mean, it absolutely does. I mean, in the year that she was born, you know, people think, okay, you, you've got a, a newborn, the business was growing, we were hiring all sorts of people, there are all sorts of challenges, all these things, what would appear as a down year ended up being the strongest year we had in our history in the first year, probably for that very reason. Because for me, it's like, okay, now it's not just about me, it's not just about my wife, we've got a family, you know, all these different things. You just take that level of, of responsibility. But I've got to ask you, you mentioned before we started that nothing was off limits. So I got to ask this question uh, because this is an exercise I do to myself a lot. And it's if you were your own competitor, let's say like you start another law firm, you've got to compete against Morgan and Morgan. What could a competitor do to, to wipe you out? I don't think anybody could wipe me out. I don't think anybody works harder than me. I don't think anybody has the imagination that I have. Look, there was never a lo- there was nobody on the back of phone books until me. They were free. It used to be just a calendar. But before I went to law school, I sold yellow pages and I thought, you know, that'd be the place I'd rather be because that's a 50-50 chance of just being found right there. So I sort of bought up them. There was no lawyers on billboards until me. There was no lawyers on buses until me. There was no lawyers on I don't think anybody could ever put me out of business. The only person who could put me out of business would be me by doing something stupid or crazy or just shut there just saying, hey, I'm done. People could put a gigantic dent in my business by doing some of the things I do, but they could never put me out of business. Only I could put myself out of business. I believe that at this writing, I'm the greatest legal marketer in the history of legal marketing. We're going to do almost a billion dollars in fees this year. We spent $150 million in advertising. So to totally put me out of business would be hard. Only I can hurt myself. Yeah, that's the right answer. I think we all get to a certain point and really it's, you know, it's you against you and then being smart in in terms of how we behave, how we manage our business, you know, how we manage ourselves personally, because you're right. I mean, at that point, it is just you. I'm I'm my own competition. And what I'm doing with my Google law firm is I'm bringing in all sorts of people and friends all over America. I mean, this firm in Boston, you know, I probably send them 200, 300 cases a month. I send, I send Sam Pond two or 300 cases a month. And I'm lucky because I don't ever, I've never thought of these lawyers as my competition. I've always thought of them as my friends and people who can make me better and ways for me to collaborate and do better with. I am my own competition. And when the drive is dead, when my drive is finally dead, that'll be the time that they have a chance to, to make inroads with me. But right now, I still want to increase. I still want to grow. I still want to do better. So obviously, I mean, you get to this point, undoubtedly, it's taken a tremendous amount of, of risk. Um, and I'm curious, is how do, you, how do you calculate the risk that you take? 
way I calculate the risk I take is they are calculated risk. Where a lot of people make a mistake is they go all in right away, you know, just push it all, all red. In my book, You Can't Teach Vision, again, almost everything I write about, I've stolen from somewhere. And I stole from uh, Jim Collins in one of his good to great books was the concept of bullets before bombs. So before I go in and do something, I go in with bullets and see if it works. I don't go in with a bomb. Why would I go in with a bomb? I start running some miso ads on CNN and it works. And I do some more bullets on MSNBC and then I do some bullets on Fox. And then all of a sudden, then I let the bombs out. So my risks are calculated risk, and it's bullets before bombs. Once I know the bullets are working, once I know what I'm doing is working, then and only then do I unleash, do I build the bombs and unleash the bombs. You can't imagine how many people make gigantic mistakes by not having the back of the house ready to take the orders. I can have the greatest chef in the world, but if I got shitty waiters, slow waiters, rude waiters. I got a bad restaurant with the greatest chef in the world making, you know, flambés and Le Cordon Bleu, chicken Le Cordon Bleu. But if I got bad waiters, I got no restaurant. So I want to ask you, cause I see on, on Facebook, I mean, it, you're posting tons of pictures of your family, of your grandkids. Um, it's clear to me that like family is, is huge for you. And, you know, you're trying to spend as much time as you possibly can with them. Uh, but I'm wondering, what are some of your non-negotiables, both personally, both and professionally? Because I've had this belief that we make progress through non-negotiables. First of all, I value mercy more than justice. So I'm not as hard as some people are. But a non-negotiable for me are liars and cheats and people who are unethical. I don't want to have anything to do with them. I don't want to be with them. I don't want people who take who cut corners. So that's a non-negotiable. That type of person, that's the cancer that gets in the gets in your system and destroys it. Another non-negotiable for me, it really is that I'm going to put my family before my business every single time. And you find out as you get older, which I now am, that time speeds up. It doesn't slow down. Only regret you'll have is that you spent too little time with your family. You won't worry about not opening up in Boston or doing another seminar in Milwaukee. You'll sit there. The regret you will have, if you have regrets, is you didn't spend enough time with the people that you loved. And, and it sounds like from what I see you doing, you're going to do both. <laughs> I'm doing both because I have a saying in life and in family, and it's called no regrets. You know, I had a mother who was terrible, big time alcoholic. I mean, I can't even describe how horrible it was. But at the end, I always took care of her, even though it was so bad. And people would ask me, say, why are you doing it? And I said, because I want to be able to answer God and say, no regrets. At the end of my life, I want to have as few regrets as possible. So as a Nostradamus moment, because I know that everybody listening is going to want to know your thoughts on this. What do you believe is the future of the legal landscape? I believe that the future of the legal landscape is that one day 
law firms will be owned by non-lawyers and there'll be a consolidation. Look, when I look at, at many law firms, like these big silk stocking law firms, I look at them with great disgust because billable time, for example, is really just pure out and out grand larceny every day. Huge felonies are committed in big law firms every day with billable time. They call it padding. They call it unit billing. They call it creative billing. It's the only business, almost the only business in the world we charge by the hour. I mean, if, if you're a guy that mows your grass, going to say, hey, I'm going to charge you by the hour to mow my, your grass, you'd be like, get the fuck out of here. I'm going to pay you 100 bucks, and that's it. And so what I think will happen over time is people are going to get wise to that. That's why I started, I started in my business, a business trial group, where I do these cases on contingency. In the, the world of commercial contingency work or commercial litigation, the two law firms are mutually in bed with each other to drag it out as long as it can go. You want a continuance? Sure. You want a continuance? Sure. Bill, 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 bill. You want another continuance? Sure. Then they get to the end. Hey, I think you better pay him $100,000. What are you talking about? You said that I was in the right. Yeah, but I, there's some things that I didn't know. Then they go to the other guy. You better pay. And all of a sudden, both people are, are having a bad outcome. There's only two winners, the two lawyers. I believe there'll be a consolidation. I believe there'll be public companies that own law firms. And I believe if, if I wasn't in this business, the John Morgan law firm would not charge by the hour. We'd charge by the job. You want your yard mode? Here's the price. So that's what I believe that the future will be. And it'll be, a, and when law firms are owned by non-lawyers or companies, there'll be a consolidation and less lawyers, which is not a bad thing either. So when you grew and scaled the firm, you know, I know you talk about calculated risks and things like that, but obviously nearly everybody listening, I imagine has a goal to grow and scale their firm. And yet you've grown into a national powerhouse. You're talking about the marketing investment being over a hundred million dollars a year. What do you believe? And this is, to me, this is always fascinating from a mindset standpoint, like when you're starting to bet with bigger chips, what was that shift when you go from playing a small game to playing a big game? They're just different zeros. It's the same game. You know, it's, it's, it's really the same game. There's just, just more zeros at the end of it. One of the reasons that people don't grow or die is because they want it, They start to make the money and they want to keep that money. They're, they're happy with that. The reason I had a firm was called Morgan, Colleen, and Gilbert. The reason Morgan, Colleen, and Gilbert went away is I had two lawyers, Colleen and Gilbert, who were great friends. Stewart died. Ron's still a great friend. But as I was moving to get more teacups, they didn't like it because I was taking profits and moving it into other cities. You know, everything's about tomorrow, nothing's about today. Well, that was that. Those two guys did not like that. They did not like moving the money from the profits to Orlando to Tampa and then moving the profits from Tampa and Orlando to Jacksonville 
and Fort Myers. They were actually asking me, they were saying, let's just close Jacksonville and Fort Myers. What they saw was money being taken from them today. What I saw was money for me tomorrow. And it didn't make them bad people, but it just made them incompatible with my vision. And so what I did is then I named, I made my wife's a lawyer. I made her the partner. And I was like, nobody's ever going to be able to tell me what to do again or have a say in what I do again. So to close this out, you know, this is a podcast. Obviously, we feature and interview game changers. But what does being a game changer mean to you? Being a game changer means being disruptive, doing things that nobody else would dare do. If you look around the world in the 21st century, who are the people who have really been game changers? They've been the disruptors. And a lot of them just broke the law in doing it. They Google, Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, the marijuana industry. They did something that was either against the law or so far-fetched it seemed impossible. Game changers are disruptors. And even the law itself doesn't stop them. They can't be stopped because they are genetically programmed to win. They are born lions. They were paper boys and they don't see obstacles. They only see opportunities. And that's a great advantage. I wanna give a big thank you to John Morgan for taking the time to chat and for sharing the philosophy that powers both his professional and personal life. You know, one of the things that particularly resonated with me was John's indisputed confidence in view, and this was not ego or arrogance or anything of the sort, that he fundamentally, in his core, believes and owns that he is the absolute best legal marketer in existence. And, you know, whether it's uh, got a, a bit of Muhammad Ali in there or what, you've got to admire that. Uh, so, John, thank you. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more details and insights from our interview with John Morgan, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be sitting down with Dr. Jason Valadeo to sort fact from fiction regarding COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus. We're going to get through this, just like the forefathers built the United States, 1776, with the Declaration of Independence. We're going to get through this adversity. The problem is a lot of people have no idea what real adversity is in their lives. And that's where we get so caught up. We think life is hard because oh, we didn't go to the best college. We don't have the best car. We never got to buy the best house. But they don't really know. A lot of business people do, though. They know what it took to start that company from the ground up. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Oh,